Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides on the quest to RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. In our main podcast episodes, we discuss D&D 5e's core rules and ever-expanding content, while also showcasing other RPG systems and bringing you fresh, new projects from indie content creators. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world you're playing in, because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Hey, Danilo from Thinking Critically here. Thinking Critically is a chat show podcast where we take a single concept or idea and discuss what it means within the Dungeons and Dragons framework. Each episode features a different guest from the TTRPG community, and so far I've welcomed actors, designers, and professional DMs. Consider an NPR-style variety bucket of thought-provoking analysis and humorous anecdotes, where we cover all sorts of things, including the nitty-gritty of how to balance encounters, the perception of D&D in popular culture, and the impact it has on mental health. My hope is that each episode helps you get the most out of your sessions, whatever side of the screen you sit on. Find us wherever you get your podcasts and visit me at thinkingcritically.co.uk. Welcome everybody to today's episode. So we are tonight going to be cracking into the latest UA from our friends over at Wizards of the Coast, uh, the beefy 21-page 1D&D unearthed arcana playtest material so we're gonna dive in there in just a minute but before we get in there mr myers mr miller pleasure as always to see you there we go how are you this fine evening doing great josh been a pretty good day getting ready to go camping tomorrow so most of it's been all about packing but nice not so bad the trip will be fun and then looking forward to heading out to visit the kids in wisconsin after that yeah yeah That'll be nice. That'll be fun. How about you, Mr. Miller? I see you in your in your Superman shirt over there. Yes. Things are going very well. I made a trip to my local store to pick up my special cover of Spelljammer, the box set. Conversation mm. for another night. I'm really looking forward to jumping in on this UA. I've spent a lot of time in the last couple of days going through it and can't wait to go ahead and provide some thoughts and some ideas yeah. and perhaps even some feedback for Watsy. And how they need to go ahead and go move forward. Yep. We know that they do listen to our votes. What When they put out a UA, there's a lot of it that gets changed by how we vote. So when this uh, particular uh, UA comes to survey time, I believe September 1st. Yep. So the, day, the day before this episode, goes, episode goes live. Yeah. By the time you're hearing yeah. this, the, uh, the survey will be live. Yeah. Yeah. But by the time you're listening to this, when you're done going through the UA, Get on that survey. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, uh, yeah, the survey in this one's going to be 
very important. And I think the survey in general for this playtest material is going to be very important. There is going to be a ton of this material coming out. They've said roughly one of these 20-ish page documents a month until this content launches at the beginning of 2024. So there's going to be a lot of material coming in. New content is that? What's that now? I was going to say, what new content is that? Just in case you haven't heard, the new one D&D is going to be the next evolution of D&D coming out in 2024. Yeah, so 1D&D is is what they're calling the next evolution, exactly. So it's not a 6th edition, it's not 5.5, but they're calling it 1D, and that's before we get too deep into the UA here, that there are two brief points that I wanted to go ahead and start on real quick here. The first one, I hope that 1D&D is a working title, because 1D&D is a lousy title. <laughs> it really, 1D&D has got, like, it, it's got iPhone 1, it's got Xbox One, it's got, all, it's got that written all over it. It sounds like awful corporate boardroom speak, and does not sound like a viable edition of one of the world's most famous role-playing games. That's my first thought. One D&D, I hope it's a working title and not the final title. D&D Next. D&D Next is not any better either. That's, like, that's... Well, how about and I get, it's of Doom? Everything's better when it's of Doom. D&D 5th Edition 2 Electric Boom. Nice. Yeah? I can go with that. So that's my first point, is that... Dude, please, as long as, as, long as it's fun, I don't care what they call it. <laughs> exactly. That's... I, but, all right, you're I right. Really it's, do a point, it's lame. One D&D is a lousy title. So that's kind of my first point. My second point is that, so we're, I don't want to say that we're late to the game, because I think we have just taken our time to kind of refine our thoughts on what's in this UA, but it's also been out for a couple of weeks at this point. In my opinion, after reading through this, I think the people that are saying that this is universally awful and the people that are saying that this is universally the best direction for D&D to go in are both wrong. I think that there are some very interesting things in this 20-page playtest document. I think that there are some things that need some work. And I think that there are some good things. And I think that this is okay, but I do think that it is clearly playtest material and that it needs some time in the oven before it comes to the tables. That's just kind of my so, other thought on this. I think that's the point of playtest material, though. And sometimes sure. we should yeah. critique it a little bit too harshly because these hopefully three-quarters baked, not just half-baked ideas that the Watsi team are working on for how to try to grow the game and provide more options. If you watch some of the videos that come with it, though the this UA came with its very own hour and three minute video. It's long, but there was some interesting stuff in there. Yeah. But they straight up say that some of them are like, we don't know if people will like it. We think yep. people might hate it, but we figured we'd roll it out and see what the feedback is, something yeah. along those lines. So they're they know it's not necessarily the end all be all, but they're definitely moving in the right direction, I think. Some of these things, I hope, are not three-quarters of the way baked, because I think that if they think it's three-quarters of the way baked, they maybe need some more eyes on this one. I think there's a lot of things that I like. There's a lot of things that... There's a few things that I really like. There are some things that I have some serious issues and concerns about, and there's a bunch of things that I think just didn't quite cross the finish line and need some tweaking to get there. Again, the purpose of a UA. But this announcement was about more than just the UA, and we're going to get to that towards the end of the evening tonight. And some of that is about the state of the game, the way the game's going, how they're coming to market, how they expect those of us who are fans of this game, fans of this hobby to continue to purchase. And I've got thoughts on that too. So yep. I'm looking forward to digging in and finding out what's, what we yep. like and conversing with you. Hopefully if there's things that I have concerns with, y'all can change my mind about it. 
And if there's things that I think are really cool and they're really not, y'all can change my mind about it. That would be yeah, awesome. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I think perspective is the name of the game when it comes to role-playing games and any analysis thereof. And I think that's going to come out in this discussion. It's about perspective, yep. but I'm interested in your perspective on this and some of those particulars yeah. here. So let's start. So obviously the beginning of the UA here deals a lot with this concept of character origin. And we're going to get to the background piece of this when we get to the actual backgrounds that, that are later in the UA here. I want to start tonight with the character races and the way that these are structured. I think that, unfortunately, the character races began with that bit about characters with with two racial origins. I want to get this out of the way first, because I did not care for that. I thought that it was... Really? I thought that it was somewhat... Yeah, I thought that it was... I thought that it was lazy. I thought that it really just said, we don't know how to solve this. We don't know how to solve it in a sensitive way. We don't know how to solve it in a way that is socially acceptable. We don't, and we don't want to take the time to figure it out. So we're just going to say, do whatever you want, pick traits for one or the other, have at it, and we're just not going to write rules for it. I found that unappetizing. And I see both of you Disagree shaking your head. Disagree wholeheartedly, okay. hard stop, what cool. the F. Yeah, tell me why. I got to tell you, I got to tell you, Josh and Glenn, you can fo- you can certainly uh, chime in if you like, but I oh, don't okay. think you've ever had a, a commentary about a D&D thing that I've disagreed with more. I absolutely thought this was just this side of a perfect way to handle it. There's one thing I could do differently, but I absolutely get why they stopped here. So I would have taken it a, ste- a slight step forward, but I'm fine with them with the step they have. First of all, what they're saying is you're primarily getting your traits, your physical attributes, whatever that may be. If you grow wings, you go wings. If you fly, you're getting those from one of your two parents. In, in other words, you as a player decide which of your parents has the dominant genes. Correct. That's powerful. Two, then you as a player decide how you look. So if 100% I want to play a half mixing health, it up however you want. If I want to play a half elf that's like Tannis, has the ears but can grow a beard, I can do that. I decide whether Tannis is more human or more elven by physicality. And then I can turn around and as far as the aging of that character, you get an average of the total age between the two races. Hot. Absolutely the way it should go. It's a perfect mix. It is a great rule. Yeah. The only thing I could see doing, and that's if the game wanted to go crunchier, and they clearly don't, so I'm absolutely fine with this rule. Love it as is. But if you wanted to go crunchier, since there are multiple traits in different areas and they all map from from lineage to lineage, I would simply say you pick which of those you get. Since you could build your own anyway, you could pick, I want this from that. I want the dark vision from this, but that's going to kick out this other thing. So if they said this is feature one, this is feature two, this is feature three, you can mix and match that way. That way it's not one single dominant parent. You get to pick the things. Yes, that's a lot of min-maxing, but- It's a recipe for min-maxing. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's the only way you could make it better. I think it's about player choice, and I love that with player choice. But it's not viable. That's the only thing that I think could make it better but the only way that could be viable is if they didn't just they'd have to power balance they'd have to scale balance all yeah. of the individual features in order to make them interchangeable exactly right? because otherwise can't. you're going to choose the powerful one from this race 
and the powerful one from this race and let the crappy ones go. Yeah. So that, that, that's the one thing that keeps it from being as good as it could be. But how else would you propose that they do this? I'm curious, Josh, short of literally writing a half elf, half dwarf, half halfling, half gnome, unless yeah. they choose to try to write them all individually, how else would you do it? That's a really good question. Like, and, and these are yeah. already in some games. Like one of the guys in the guy sitting across from Crawford, whose name I can't remember in the, uh, in the interview, Not- one of the char- thank you. One of the characters in his game is what they call a noblin. It's half gnome, hmm. half goblin, which is great. Yeah. But unless you wrote one for everything, you know, this yeah. is. Yeah. I, yeah. I guess that's ultimately the issue is that you're right. I don't have a solution to it. I don't have a, I don't have a, a good solution to it. And so maybe I too am kind of throwing up my hand saying, I, I don't know how to fix it. But I think, I think this that, is elegant you know, when you, yeah. and simple. I love it for its simplicity. I okay. love it for its somewhat accuracy. The only gripe I have about this whole part of part, section in general is this was their opportunity to get rid of the word race in this game and they passed it up. That was True the story. next thing on my list. Especially Absolutely. now that they're allowing for in the rules 100% multiracial if you stick with that term but that's not accurate right ancestral because races don't work that way it's the way that science and classification goes it's right they're not and more importantly it was interesting and very telling during the i believe it was crawford's discussion with kenrick on the ua he used the term ancestry more times than he used the term race. He only yeah. used the word race as it prescribed specifically to the mechanics of the game. Every other part of his discussion, and I might be wrong, I might be off, but I really listened to that part of things. He used the term ancestry. And I'm yeah. saying this because I want everybody who hears me to please write in, please put in there, please yeah. dump the term race in D&D. Use Absolutely. ancestry or and yeah. or lineage. I think that is what that is the one thing that the entirety of the internet agrees that the term race in Dungeons and Dragons should go away. So call yeah, to action. Totally, everyone absolutely. who follows our podcast, all of you listening, everyone within the sound <laughs> of our voice, fill out the yeah. survey when it comes out on September 1st, because that's when it goes live and put that straight in there. Stop calling it race. Call it yep. ancestry. Yep. Let's do it. Our thoughts on the and I'm, I'll call them ancestries from now on. I'm not going to refer to them as races. I'll call them ancestries. So the human ancestry, again, again, sp- seems like the kind of boilerplate ancestry like it is in D&D 5 proper. They get the bonus feat like the variant humans do in uh, in 5th edition. Otherwise, it kind of seems like the boilerplate class, not a bunch of flash, not a bunch of, not a bunch of uh, interesting things. Although this is the first time that we see something else that's very interesting in this UA, and that's the expanded rules for inspiration. This is kind of the first time that we see it, because now we see humans on a daily basis after they go ahead and take a long rest, they automatically start their day with one inspiration, which I think is a very interesting mechanic. I want to hear your thoughts. I think it's brilliant, and yeah. there's a lot more to the discussion than just as it pertains to, to humans. So yeah, we may as well just launch into that now then, since it came up, because yeah, they expanded the inspiration mechanic in general, and I yeah, love yeah. what they've done with it. Reflect something not they did it much better to start i had been thinking about in my own games taking inspiration out of my hands as a storyteller because 
I'll call out the person who sure. I noticed, but there's so many people at the table. And instead, have every session, each player have the ability to award inspiration to another player yeah. for something yeah. that they did. I love yeah. that, too. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. But they've fantastic. set it up now where you get it every time you roll a natural 20. Yep. More That's than that, there, there are other abilities throughout this, and yeah. I imagine there are more on the horizon that'll come out way. in future UAs that give it. And specifically, Crawford said in his Todd Kenrick conversation, pardon me, in his Todd Kenrick conversation, they found through playtesting and feedback that inspiration was not used because people hoarded it. They as hoarded long as DMs exactly were giving right. it out, they held it. I can't tell you how many times I've had to go to the homebrew. It carries over from session to session. Because right. our sessions don't always cover a full game. Sometimes our sessions split a combat. Yeah. And I love the mechanic and I want people to get a reward, but they stop. The reward stops being cool if they never get a chance to use it. Yep. And if they're afraid that they won't get another one, they won't use it. So this is one of those things. It's like we found out with key. Use it. Spend out. Yeah. Points. Slots. Spend out. You're in the you're in the moment. Live in that moment, and so the way that what otherwise you may die in that was, moment. Yeah, his specific statement was: if we find a way to turn it up so that they're getting it more frequently, there will be no incentive to hoard it. Then people start playing with this really fun mechanic. So yeah. that's what they've done, and they're doing it in a lot of different ways. Humans just happen to start with it, and I think it's reflective of the way humans are supposed to be, lore wise, narrative wise, in a multi ancestral multi lineage kind of world and all the worlds where humans are generally there and they're the ones that grow real fast do amazing things the elves are amazed that we've done so much with so little time the dwarves are like they're pretty resilient for sweeney little looking things whatever the case may be there's always this weird thing where everybody's huh humans babylon five everybody had this thing look at them go but yeah but they got it and i think this is very reflective of that Absolutely agree with both of you. I love the fact that they are building in mechanically more excuses for a storyteller to give away inspiration or for players to earn it. The one minor tweak, and again, this is not even a complaint. This is more just a minor tweak. It seems pretty obvious to me that they are getting rid of, and because this was really underemphasized in 5th edition also, critical failures. They're getting rid of... They, they, Mentioned a little bit where it's like a one is always a failure, a two is always a 20 is always a success, and keeping it at that. I think inspiration should be awarded on a one, not on a 20. If you fail, that's what should give you inspiration to go ahead and succeed in the future. It's a fail forward mechanic instead of a building on success mechanic because there's already benefits to go ahead and succeed to getting a 20. I think that could just be a little bit cooler. Not going to die on that bridge, but I think that could just be a little bit cooler. No, I'll climb out there on you with that bridge and add on some extra supports and a side bridge saying, why not both? Yeah, I was going to say, why not both? Yeah, that, The goal is to increase you. inspiration, not limit it. So well, why not both? You can because be then you're giving away inspiration on, on 10% incredible. of rolls. Like uh, on 10% of every check, you're giving away inspiration. And in, think about how often that's going to happen in combat. Correct. But again, you only can have one at a time. Sure, but if you've got a party of six people, it's a, I, oh. I think the math of it f- falls out where you're, that's going to be a lot of inspiration going back and forth. Super cool addition, though, to the inspiration rules in the UA. If you already have it and you earn it again, it's not lost. You can give it to give a friend. To somebody else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Which so you is can hot. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's, that's what I'm saying. I think that if you've got a 10-round combat 
with a party of six. So that's what 60 rolls. 20% of those are going to ha- be ones or 20s mathematically. That's 12 of them. That means everybody in a 10 round combat gets two inspirations. That's a lot. But I think I like it goal. with either ones. I think that's, I like it at either ones or 20s. I'm not sure mm. that I like it at both, and I prefer it at ones. That's just me. Okay, fair enough. Yep. And then yep. I will build my own bridge, apparently, and leave you yep. to stand on your sad little bridge by yourself. <laughs> exactly. My bridge only goes halfway across the river. So after the humans is the new race. And again, this is an interesting nod to the very origins of Dungeons and Dragons and the city of Sigil and the the kind of the very origins of all of these things. The old celestial race, the Asa, the Ardling, these animal-shaped celestials. Archerized and such. Yeah, a really interesting sort of very interesting race. A very interesting ancestry. I'm, I'm not totally sure how I feel about it. I'm not sure. So is this something where they're trying to take not just the Asimar, but also the Aarakocra and the Tabaxi and all of those animal races? Are they now trying to go ahead and streamline all of those and put them into one bucket to go ahead and simplify? I'm not sure, but it's an interesting thought. I don't think so. I think the Ardling is a standalone being, and I don't think those are going away. I think this represents the ancestries on the table for the new one D&D PHB due out in 2024. And I think the Tabaxi from Mordecanans and everything else will still stand as solid, particularly with the backwards compatibility that they're promising with this edition. Yep. Because they say over and over again, they're not trying to take anything away, just add more. Yep. It's an interesting thought. Yeah. I like them. I don't think I would play them, play one, but I like them. I prefer ASMR. But what I find is interesting is, and it was part of a discussion on one of the ch- shows I was watching, was that um, Tieflings made the player's handbook last time around, but mm-hmm. ASMR didn't. Right. And yep. I, I like the fact that a- that this is here, but I think it's pooping on ASMR. But okay. I would say Tieflings have three different options. I think with Celestials, they could do with celestial type player races, they can do the same thing. Ardlings being one of them, ASMR being a, a second one, and then they could come up with a third one and then have it match. Because for me, the only thing I, whenever I think Tieflings, is I want a balance for that. So if Tieflings have three, I think ASMR should have three. That's the synergy. It's the Tyrion logic. Canis in so, me like that. But the, the, the Ardlings do have three. And so did the ASMR. The ASMR were just put back out in Mordecanans. Yeah. With this new format. So the ASMR isn't going to wind up in the PHB because they already did it. They did it pre-PHB. They said the ASMR is so important, we can't wait. There is that. Yeah. There is. I think with the Ardlings, we also see, again, the advent of two new kind of mechanical structures that we're going to see throughout this book. The first one is ancestries with inherent spellcasting ability. Mm -hmm. Pretty much universally, every time that I saw that in this UA, it was hot. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved their spell progression. I loved the spells they got. I loved the thought that was put into. You talked about the tiefling, Liwanika. I thought the way that they thought through what spells the tiefling flavors get was amazing. I Fantastic. I'm all in for it. Absolutely in. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. The second thing that we're going to see. Sorry. Do you want to? Yeah, go ahead. I want to jump on that one for a hot second. I like it. I do. But narratively, it doesn't work for me. It stresses me out. It messes with my storyteller brain. 
And this is why. Any of the ancestries that give you an expanding power when you achieve higher levels in a class yeah, don't make any sense because an ancestry isn't related to a class. Yep. They aren't related. Yeah. You could be a you could be a drow or drow depending on your preferred pronunciation. Your mom may have never been a classed character. She may have never had and wouldn't have because she was an NPC, a player class. She would have never reached level 5, level 3. So how does she have full drow magic? Yep. They're not related. I get it makes sense and it's an easy way to tie the mechanic if you ignore the fact that it makes no sense two character progression which is why i like it but that's why it sticks in my craw you mentioned the fact that the spells should not be tied to a class i don't think they are in any way shape or form at all i think what they're saying by lore these people have a natural ability it's a spell casting ability that's why it happens outside of class it just so happens if you have a spell casting class you can then cast it again with that this is a natural ability for spell casting i don't think you're understanding what i was saying Lee, when it, it's not that i object to them being able to use it that way it's that when you get if you are an exalted ardling you get thermaturgy at first level divine fla- divine favor not flavor at third level and restoration at fifth lesser restoration at fifth but that's a class most mechanic. Yeah. Ardlings never attain levels at all. You're correct. So to attach it to a level requirement, which is a class, that's all I'm saying, is that part makes no sense. That's it. It does, because everything has a CR. You either it's have one of that. you have one of two things. You have a class or you have a CR. And what okay, they're saying a, is when you achieve a certain power level. A third level character is a CR1 creature, though. They don't relate. The metric doesn't work. Mechanically, they don't, but by lore, what they're saying is if your character gets more powerful, then they get this ability. I have no problem with that in lore because anybody can be more powerful and not have a character class. It's even easier than that. At the very beginning of the UA, they say specifically that NPCs don't follow the same rules as character lineages. They do I know. Not. They came up with BS ways to slapstick it together, but it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Okay, so we agree to disagree on that one, I think. Yeah, I am in between you two, right? I like the fact that they get spellcasting, and I can recognize that tying an ancestry ability to their class progression is weird. But that's also where we are. That's what they're doing. Because the second thing that I wanted to go ahead and talk about with the with the Ardlings was how many is that they have a huge ability, and we're going to see this throughout these lineages tying benefits to their proficiency bonus. So again, tying a ancestral ability to their character progression of, as a, through a class. And we see it all it is all over this thing. It is filthy with it. Like they're everywhere. That kind of mechanic is everywhere in this thing. So that's something that we have talked about on this show a lot about how we need more powers that scale. We need more powers that get better as I get up in level, everything like that. So I think that I'm going to be a contradiction on this one because we've been saying this forever, that we need more powers that do this. And here they are doing it. And we're like, oh, but no, they're doing it wrong. And uh, here's the thing. I'm not saying I that. don't think I don't think that they're – well, you, two of us are. I don't think that they're doing <laughs> it wrong necessarily. I'm not sure what I'm I do saying think that is, either. What I do think is that they've, they've overcompensated. They've put the pendulum too far. 
right? They're making everything based on perfect uses of proficiency bonus. When we get to the dwarves, which I tried to get to earlier, we're going to see the same thing, where they can only use tremor sense a number of times equal to their proficiency bonus. And so now you've got multiple powers tied to your proficiency bonus that you're going to need to track for your character between each long rest. And it's just, it's going to become a lot. It's going to, there's a lot of things that are all based on proficiency bonus in particular. So I think that, I think that is definitely, that's definitely where these things are going is that these ancestral abilities are now going to improve as your character progresses. It's something that we've been asking for. And it's a little wacky that they're going to go ahead and base, make ancestral based powers tied to your class mechanic. So I would ask, the question in reverse, similar to what Glenn did before, what's the other option? So, and just in our construction for our some of our mm -hmm. feats and some of our subclasses, there were times I was like, oh, we should maybe we should tie this to a dice mechanic. Like they have a pool's dice that can do X, Y, or Z. Sure. And the reality is that actually was more complicated yep. and more tracking note keeping in many cases than simply saying proficiency bonus, yeah. which was a static number that everybody's familiar with and can keep going. And it, and it scales with the right number generally. Yep. And everybody uh, has the same as one. You go. The everybody same has the range. same one, regardless of whether they multi-class or something else. So if you did five in this and four in this other thing, your a dice pool is not the neatest mechanic because then someone's got to remember what your dice pool is and what die yep. number it is. And while I think it works well for some of the characters that it exists on, it can get complicated. So yep. I actually, this mechanic, I like yep. it with the proficiency bonus and I'm all for it. If it is easier and simpler to do it with that add on, I don't so, care. If there's I was going to say I kind of land in the middle and I've almost talked myself out of my previous argument, but not quite. I just have a better way to make it at the end of this because it pertains to the proficiency bonus too. I get it and it makes complete sense. I'm all for it. You're getting exactly what we've been asking for, but because there's so much of it, it's like, oh, wait, that might be too much and reacting yeah. with a little bit of fear out of yep. prematurely because it. what else makes more sense than a single modifier tied to a range of a power scale of level ranges yep. to influence any ability that you want to scale with power with the with yep. your character as they get as they go up in level. That's what we've been saying forever. Yep. So anything they apply it to, it just makes the whole mechanics of the game more streamlined than it was before, even and I don't more. Think, yeah, I disagree. Because it's here's the thing. If, it's, if it all becomes the same thing, it's all plus two, yeah. plus four, plus six. Yep. And I, I don't even. Uh, so, yeah, so that would work. And anything that has like a benefit, like a mechanical benefit or a number attached to it, I think that rather than using like a dice pool, I think you use escalating dice. So, tier one is a D6, tier two is a D8, tier three is a D12. I think that is nice and smooth, nice and easy. Everything is great there. The other thing that you do is that anything that is ancestral-based, like flight. An Ardling can fly. That's what Ardlings can do. Why are we limiting the number of times they can do it? Can fly. Let me quote Crawford. Because he wanted to, them to do something that was cool and not take away from an already existing ancestry. Basically, the flying ancestry is the Aarakocra. They didn't want to make something that flies better or the same as the Aarakocra because it takes away that's uniqueness. So what they've done is they've created a different kind of mechanic that is that gives them the, right. a movement thing that is limited and limited in an odd way. Now, whether that's the right limitation to put on it, that's a different argument. I think that they have 
hooked too many things to proficiency bonus and too many things that don't make sense to that are ancestral powers to proficiency bonus. The problem with this entire argument is that Aka and I are arguing from the perspective of justifying the mechanic for being present. But Josh's argument is not arguing that it shouldn't be present. He's arguing that it's present too much. We have no yeah. way to quantify his exact level of too muchness versus ours. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Because you don't have a number of what's the number of it, it is too much. There's no way for us to really debate that fact. You just think it's too much. I yeah. personally think there's not enough of it, but that's just me. I think the proof will be in the pudding. I think that as people play them, some of them, they may say, meh, this is crappy. And some of them, they yeah. may say, this is spot on. And we don't know what it's going to look like when it comes out. I'll also yeah. say that things like a feat for Tremor Sense, we may see in future editions. This is yeah. just about what they put together for this. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's move off of the Ardling then. I actually thought that the Dragonborn was pretty well built and pretty round. I didn't have, there wasn't much that I didn't care for, but you're shaking your head, Luanika. Go ahead. I'm going to quote Glenn here. This is crop. And I'll tell you why. Because we finally got a Dragonborn that was worth playing when the breath weapon was a bonus action out of Fizbin's. This walked that back. So now it's an a-, a full action again. Crop. It'll so, never get used. That's what I don't they think found that, the first time around. Players didn't use it when it was an action, especially if you're, unless you're a fighter, you don't get enough attack actions or spells mm. to waste on your breath weapon. No matter what class you play, other than a rogue, you're not wasting your action. And even a rogue, because you've got a shot at your sneak attack, you're not wasting a breath weapon all right. as your attack. So That's why make sure it has that goes to be in. a bonus action. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I, and I missed there's that. There's only a there's only a cone option now for breath weapons too, versus some cone, some line. Some changes are going to happen, and some of them may or may not stick. Yeah. But I think that's a nice is, streamline, honestly. Yeah, I think that's a nice streamline. Yeah, it makes it easier to just have it be one thing. Yeah, and honestly, I think cone is more accurate because of the various types than stream. Because if yep. you're doing out a gas, it doesn't make sense for a gas to be in a line. So I think right. you kind of have to go cone if you're going to pick one for all. I think you have no choice but to go cone. Okay, yep. makes, and I think cone makes the most sense too, absolutely. So it's weird yep. for lightning. Yep. Not impossible. You could have hearts <laughs> of lightning that go out in a cone fashion. But yeah. Yeah. All right. Now we're up to the dwarves, which you've already talked about a lot. Other thoughts on the dwarves other than Tremor Sense and Stone Cutting? Only that I found it interesting that there are no dwarven subraces. And I found Crawford's justification for why interesting as well that the hill dwarf versus mountain dwarf distinction was cultural only, not ancestral, and hmm. that on some worlds there are only dwarves and there aren't multiple kinds. Basically, apparently the multiple types of elf made it into enough canon that they got to keep theirs is how sure. it felt to me. That's yep. exactly what happened. Then they just smooshed all the dwarves culture back together and you get to develop that on your own in your own world, Yeah, which I guess is okay. It does make me wonder what they're going to do with the Dwargar, which are really a sub lineage of dwarves, but are a monstrous race. So I got an answer lineage. for that. They are separate in monsters of the multiverse. So they're yep. staying separate. They're staying separate. Yep. Okay. Yep. yep. They're in multi monsters, of the multiverse as their own thing. Yeah. We see these throughout all these ancestries, the ancestry of many world blurb at the end of each ancestry. Again, very interesting from a how are we going to get this material point of view like this book is 
pretty clearly going to be steered towards, again, nods to older editions of D&D with its reliance on Sigil and with Planescape coming out at the end of 2023. And that's very much going to be kind of cropping back up. It keeps cropping back up, doesn't it? Yeah, I've seen it a lot um, more recently. I thought that those many worlds blurbs at the end of all these ancestries were were fantastic. And it was a really nice addition. I'd love to go ahead and see more of that sort of thing. We saw that sort of thing. It's kind of like the gazetteers that we saw at the end of each chapter in the Radiant Citadel. It's like it's additional information that just makes the mechanics that have been presented better, rounder, more useful. Yep. Cool. I agree. All right. Elves. Let's get to the elves, which again, I thought their narrative section at the beginning was probably one of the most interesting narrative sections at the beginning. When they start talking, with they're, they're bringing in Loth, they're bringing in Coralon, they're bringing in like really a lot of the Elven Pantheon right at the beginning to say, complicated Pantheon, here's the TLDR, none of the gods agree. Carry on. I thought that, that was very interesting. <laughs> Otherwise, again, I thought that the, that separating out the sub-ancestries with different spells, very interesting, very intriguing. I think that, like to Glenn's point earlier, enough Elven stuff has been written that it is canon yep. and they're not going to be able to do one D&D without keeping a lot of that lore in place. And so this is a good way of centering it in a way that individual tables can focus it the way they wish it to be focused. And it pays homage to and allows for all pre-existing canon and also leaves room to write new canon, whether it be in new homebrew worlds or as they continue to redevelop other worlds. So I'm fine with it. Monsters of the Multiverse had the Eladrin. Monsters of the Multiverse had the Sea Elves and so on and so forth. So there are a couple other things. And obviously Spelljammer has the Astral Elves. Yeah. And Crawford made an interesting point about Elves are, because they come from a malleable race, they are warped by their environment in, a, in ways that dwarves aren't. They're stalwart. They are what they are. The fact that they're now using magic to help display or express that yeah cheat that malleability but of course they made the point that it took millennia in these various environments to do that so the shattered eye i forgot i left them out shame on me when i was talking about monsters of the multiverse that's because they were stuck in the shadowfell they're there the aladrin were in the fey realm so they're there i love the fact that you've got basically elves of every environment and there's something very specific to each environment I think that's pretty cool. I am waiting to figure out how I want to create elves for Mechanis. I've got a couple of years to get that figured out, but I think that would be neat. Make, them, make the Borg, them the Borg. Have yeah. them absorb bits of clockwork and technology into their own bodies. I mean, that's bit hot. By bit. And the next thing, they're rocking like yeah. a seven of nine eye oculate thing yeah. that gives them enhancements. And- I, yeah. Oh, man. It's like a whole race, a whole group of, of elven artificers who specialize on body modification. They're not full uh, constructs. They're partial that, constructs. Yep. That could be a faction. I can see that. So the one thing that's very interesting is, is nerf to elves, which I don't think that anybody is going to complain about. Elves are no longer completely immune to charm. They get advantage on that role, but they are no longer immune. And I'm fine with that. The fact that you have to resist charm versus free from it, I think is solid. Yep. yep. Yeah, I think that's nice. It doesn't yeah. make any sense for them to be immune to charm. That's basically right. saying the entire Feywild is immune to itself. Yeah, which yeah. which I guess makes some sense. Like, you can't be charmed by your own environment, which I guess makes sense. It, again, actually feeds into the, you're warped by your environment, you absorb it, you 
pick up the characteristics of the environment that you're native to, but right. it was too much. I will say that the one thing with the elven sleep, letting them take a long rest that's only four hours long, it just, when they're the only ones that can do it and everybody else requires eight hours, it no. just, it, it, it just, I, I don't know. Like, how does that, again, we've talked about this before. Like, what is that elf going to do? I suppose that they can be on watch. They can do the other things overnight and everything like that. But make an all elf party that moves and shakes, man. Yeah. I and know. I believe there's at least three other ancestries that only have to sleep for six hours. Yeah. Well, and that's some that are like, like get the four. I, I guess the fact that it's four instead of six is better. Logically, yeah. it makes sense for these people to not need to sleep more. And yeah. I think that with the lineages that they have, uh, the Warforged, the Autonomes, the Glitchlings, I think is the other one. There's a couple others that yeah. I think are reduced sleep. But with all of those, I think it makes sense that they should have reduced sleep. Because I agree with that from a narrative standpoint, then I say make all that easy. There's two types of sleep. There's eight-hour sleep and there's four-hour sleep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I just see four-hour sleep as a benefit that doesn't actually have a practical use at the table. If it's a small group. And yep. one elf can make you be able to run a full watt schedule with double overlap overnight and still let your spellcasters get enough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Basically, and that's usually what that comes up. They're watch yeah. monkeys, basically. Okay. But in, in a small party, how often, is your, is. how often is your elf going to be the spellcaster, though? Very. I just meant that he can cover half of the watch. So you only really need one, two other people to cover watch at all yeah. for just yeah. a few hours. So three people could cover watch on three people cover watch is a lot better than needing four people yeah. or five people or six people right. to cover watch. It's still a token thing. It yeah. really is token. Yeah. Adding it's that really token. saying that's a no. benefit is really yeah. just splitting hair. Things that we hand wave at the table are going to continue to get hand waved. And that doesn't really, it's not really that huge a benefit. But at my table, we do a lot of watch schedule stuff that like yeah. that comes up often. Okay. <laughs> so. Cool. But at my, based on this discussion at my table, if I have two races, if I have a four and a six, I might just make the six person be a four. Let's go to what was my favorite ancestry. The, is my favorite okay. ancestry. Okay, I, I still no, like. It. Was my favorite when I read through the book, the gnomes. I think these. No, I think that these are. They just seem fun, and their mechanics are nothing to sneeze at. Like the fact that they get like gnomish it. cunning with automatic advantage on three out of six saving throws. That's huge. It used to be and only then, against spells or yeah. but now it's everything. Yep. And the ability to craft your little when you're a rock gnome, do you be able to craft your little uh, automaton there? That's just silly and fun. I loved it. I liked it better as tinkering in its original version as opposed mm -hmm. to an evolution of prestidigitation. Sure. Or whichever cantrip it's used, but yeah. No. Prestidigitation, so, yeah. yeah. So I hear you. No shade towards gnomes and players who love playing gnomes, because I've had a number of players who play gnomes at my table. What I find is it's just not a it's just not a lineage that I personally gravitate towards. And I've played one or two here or there, but it's just not something I choose to play. So I found all of it very useful, very good. It looks like it'll be fun for people who like them. And I don't know why. It's a lore thing. It just doesn't speak to my experience as a player. It's just not something I've sought out to play as a gnome. But I think I their abilities gnomes. are amazing, and I think that they're very useful. I love having gnomes in my party, even if I'm never yeah. going to play one. What do we think about the halflings? I think halflings are characters very similar to gnomes for me. I'll play one from time to time. I've played many more halflings than I've ever played gnomes. I don't I play short them. races because um, you need to feel tall. I don't tend to, but I like dwarves. If I do play a short race, it'll tend to be dwarves. 
But I and I'm do, tall, but I, I play like, a lot of short races. I like the ability set that halflings have. They fit my play style better than gnomish abilities as far as that goes. And who can say no to getting rerolls, really? If I'm going to take one, I've always enjoyed the reroll. There's not a whole lot that's really changed here beyond right. what I've been saying forever, which was that halflings should be given 30 feet of movement. I don't care what the player's handbook says. Clearly, all yeah. races get 30 feet, at least now. That's There's now confirmed. Only, yeah. Yep. 30 feet of movement is the biggest change. They already The Brave operates pretty much the same. Halfling nimbleness. Yep. Lucky. And actually, is Stealth an addition? Is that new? Yeah. yeah. That's new. That's coming in yeah. from the... Yeah. So Stealth so, is new. But basically, it's just... It's the Halfling race that we've always known and loved, given the new rewrite of this new format they're going to give us for our lineages that follows this specific layout yeah. of creature types, size, speed, lifespan, and then its abilities. Yep. Yeah. The halflings, again, nice, a nice round class that has some nice bennies. Nice, nice round ancestry. Has some nice bennies. It'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. No, halflings are awesome. You're rolling ones. It's hot, especially if you play at a table yeah. with a DM who does merciless critical failures. Well, sorry. Orcs. 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 Ah, <laughs> uh, he will <laughs> see in one, one of us. Yeah, orcs. With all uh, apologies to Mr. Mercury, what'd you guys think? I'm down. I yeah. think orcs are really good. The fact that we stepped away from half orcs and the problematic past of that lineage in editions past the fact that we got into eberron where orcs were members or parts of society and they're natural born regular people not monsters i think is good anything we can do to move orcs out of monster status into people status it just drives home a point that i've started doing in my games i don't let player characters harvest from anything that's a sentient being so when they talk about harvesting from monsters, you can harvest from some creatures, but not others. I don't allow that at my table because I'm not getting into the point of monster versus person, sentience mm-hmm. and non-sentience and how that all interacts. So I have some concerns as it comes to dragons in that regard. And I've started getting away from, oh, you have a dragon, this and that, unless it's the dragon gave you a piece of its scale to do yeah, yeah. something with. It's not like you skinned a dragon and got armor. Yeah, that's fair. I think the one thing that I wish that I saw in the in the kind of the narrative of the orc is some acknowledgement that Grumsh is evil. I wish that they had said they had at least mentioned it in passing. Even if they say many orcs have that the that they have become fully functioning members of society and all that sort of thing. I think that there's a way that they could go ahead and spill that without glossing over that. But again, that yeah, I, I, might, just, I might just be on the losing side of that battle. They mentioned the fact, and I'll read directly. Young orcs are often told about their ancestors' ancient conflicts with elves in the forest, dwarves under the mountains, and invaders from evil planes of existence. Inspired by tales, by those tales, young orcs often wonder when Grumsh will call upon them to match heroic deeds of their ancestors and right. Grumsh heroic deeds of their ancestors. Yeah. Grumsh right. was not heroic. Grumsh was evil. They, they, they do try to put it out that way. But yeah. so Grumsh could be evil, still created this people in his image, but gave them or they developed on their own the ability to set 
their own destiny. They're no longer yep. enslaved to his alignment. But yeah. yeah, they should have just straight up said that. they were. I wish they leaned into that a little bit more. That's all that I'm saying. Right. Yeah. He yeah. could still be part of their culture that they talk about, but it could be more you know, the stories they tell the kids to get them to be good as opposed to mighty Grumsh is going to call on you to be a hero one day when Grumsh might actually be pillaging you know. the countryside. <laughs> Perhaps what they're implying is in a new version of various pantheons maybe grumsh is evil by alignment but his history was written by the non-orcs and mm. the orc history sees him differently yeah that's fair all right Nika, you had mentioned the tiefling earlier yes what do you think i like them i've personally never played a tiefling i certainly played a character who if i were to retro create that first edition character i would have made him a tiefling just because of the way I played the character and how that leaned into what he became. I like the tiefling as, as a lineage. I think they're enjoyable. I like their mechanics. I think they work well. They blend great with several different classes from a mechanical standpoint, and they do a lot of the things. I think narratively, they can be problematic depending on the kind of story you're telling at your game and the world you set up. So the lore you build into your game becomes very important as to how they express at your table so as to allow people, players, the choice of this lineage, but also not and not punish them for that choice, but still hold true to your narrative. So they're very, for me, in order to use these at your table, it's very important to have discussions at Assassin Zero. That's why in my homebrew campaign, the only two lineages I do not allow are Tieflings and Asimov. But they exist. I just don't allow players because they're very limited in that there are two currently alive in the world. And the players are actually responsible for keeping them alive. They're the focus of one of the campaigns. They're trying to keep these two alive because there's a mission. That's the big plot is get these two mm -hmm. infants to a place to do a ritual that's going to save the world. And they got a nanny named Bodie. Yep. Ah, welcome, travelers. Time has passed since we last spoke. But if you look to the horizon, if you stare to the stars, can you see it? It is all taking shape now. Have you heard the call of the sea and the clash of swords from the lands of the boiling seas? Have you stared down metropolitan alleys and thought for a moment you saw movement? Have you journeyed to the abyss and been shaped by the things that dwell in the shadows? Have you left all of that behind and traveled to the outlets? Our latest offering Heroic Subclasses of the Multiverse, successfully funded in 72 hours. Join now to reap the benefits as we expand it to include all our stretch goals. Go to www.ttjourneys.com slash kickstarter for more information and weekly updates. Fair time, friends, for legends await. Lots of stuff in the ancestries, lots of stuff to go ahead and pick apart, obviously. Let's move to the backgrounds. I think that this whole background section is a tale of two cities for me. I love, love, love the recipe for basically giving every character the freedom to make a custom background. I love it. 
I love it. I love it. I love it. I think as content creators, it gives us the recipe to make backgrounds more robust and within this model, very clear and very, very easy. I love it. I wasn't sure that the recipes that they came up with in this playtest were very dynamic. I found a lot of them to be pretty lackluster. But that's just how I felt about it. First, I want to talk about Crawford, and I, and I keep going back to this because it's in order for me to have a, an idea of what he was going for, I have to go by his words that he put out, and his interview with Kendrick was the best spot to do that. But I like the fact that they did, they switched it up. It's build your own is the first thing to, that you do. And then if you're looking for, for something that's already pre-built, then they've got the samples that you can select from. And I do think there might be some rhyme to that reason as far as why they might be a little lackluster, because they really just want you to build your own. And I'm not opposed to that. I think that the samples probably should have been a little bit better, despite the fact I think they were trying to steer us to building your own. But one of the things I really like, though I disagree with the amount, is that they balanced the gold allotment regardless of background. Crawford made a big point of that in his discussion with Kendrick. So that was a big issue for him is the fact that they found through playtesting and feedback that many people kept taking the noble background because it left you with more money to start with. And I thought that was interesting. I wouldn't do that because I'm the background guy, the self-professed background guy. So I would never take a background simply for the gold that was left. But I also play at tables where regardless of what it says your starting equipment is, Unless you start shipwrecked, you are starting with whatever makes sense for your character to start at the level with which you're starting, whether it be first level or 15th level, whatever that level is, you're going to have whatever you need to get started, whatever makes sense. And it's not always 50 GP worth of stuff. You have a life, you have a home, your home has more than 50 GP worth of stuff in it. So (laughs) you don't get just stuck with this. This might be the stuff you put on your sheet at my table. I'm going to manage this logically anyway. It's going to be yeah. what it's going to be. Money's just not a big thing in my campaigns anyway. So yeah. manage the money. So I don't care. I think there are a variety of ways you can fix that. One, you give the party, a, you give the individual or the party a patron. Like that's one way to go ahead and fix it. Now they have addition, they have access to additional coin. At the end of the day, I get the balance. And if the idea here is we don't want somebody to pick a thing simply because it's more money or it gets a better this or that. So I like that. And I think the things like the weapons and the armor are going to come from the classes from what I'm gathering. Um, yeah, I'm guessing as that, well. make, that makes perfect sense. Then I'm absolutely fine yeah. with this on that basis. Basically, each class or each subclass gets a, a starting kit. If you're a paladin, right. you get a suit of armor and a sword and a shield and that kind of thing. Yep. And on the balancing of the checkbooks of the equipment list, they also did some balancing across other things too. Like all of the toolkits are 15 gold now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And things like that to make them more affordable. You should start out with everything that, you're going to need for your character. If you've got somebody making a case for, like I was, I'll admit it, as Sprocket with, and when the candle keep mysteries started, making a case for, but I want alchemist supplies. I'm proficient at them. I should have them. Yeah. They're expensive. You may have learned the skill. That doesn't mean you've been able to afford your own set yet. It makes total sense. But what I like most, and what I was most excited about the backgrounds, is that swap of priority they made from here, create your own. You don't have to take one of these cookie cutters. I love that. And I love the language that they're using and that I've been seeing throughout the origins document that I'm hoping is going to carry over into the text of the book because it sets the flavor and I'm 
pretty sure it's their intent that says they're focusing more on a narrative background character concept creation model this time which i love the things that we create it comes right from the background and that narrative reason behind the characters and being able to create your own the way that they designed it it's neat because even and i could see it in dnd beyond once it finally comes out where you're writing your own blurb about the middle of what your background does but you pick the title and then you go through it it's got your ability scores on it now but you pick the ability scores that it increases you pick the proficiencies you learned from it and you call yourself a baker if you want to be a baker and i think that's fantastic a lot of people are still going to go to the cookie cutters though because it's easier and that's okay building their backgrounds isn't there isn't everybody's thing but while I agree that they're lackluster, I think that's fantastic because it gives us room to write better ones. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think it's perfect for writing pre-gens. You're running a one-shot. You're writing a bunch oh, yeah. of pre-gen characters. You're not writing an individual background for pre-gens for an adventure. Mm -hmm. But a one-shot and then a little paragraph backstory oh. is all oh, yeah. you need. Right. Th these are now zero-character NPCs. They're fantastic. They're fantastic. Yeah. And they're all plug and play too. You can tweak them any way you want. You could take their sure. guard cookie cutter that's got the alert feet and instead give it the tavern brawler feet because yep. he's the guard who always gets drunk and starts a fight at the down at the docks yeah. every every night. You can pick yeah. up from here, place over there. It's all very yeah. interchangeable. Interchangeable. Yep. Thank you. I was struggling to find a good word. I'll be here so all speaking night. Speaking of feats. Speaking of feats. I got the one. <laughs> yeah. My only carriage. I've got to I push find, on yeah. through. The distinction between first level feats and higher level feats. Yeah. Fantastic. Yep. In that, it answered the ASI question we've been wondering about for so very long. Sure. Yeah. A first level feat has no ASI increase because at that level, you're not supposed to be able to increase right. your... Right stats any further yeah. so that's i got the very yeah. inhuman ability to be able to pick up something with an asi feat to boost a stat above everybody else yeah so that kind of balances that out a lot and i really think that the way that they made that distinction is awesome i'm curious as to see what the levels requirement structure is going to look like after that if some of my fast favorites will have moved up to a higher level sentinel not before will sentinel be eight because it's so powerful yeah That'll yeah. piss a lot of people off. I'm waiting to see what those look like. I, can, I will put my money down right now. One shiny quarter that says Sentinel will be a fourth level feat. No, I no agree. question in my mind. I agree 100%, but that's just the one that popped into my head to yeah. ask the question. Yeah, yeah, Sentinel's yeah. all going to be there. Guaranteed. Yeah. All yeah. The, I, I, I see them at fourth level too. Yep. I found it interesting that Fighting Initiate didn't make this list. Like The Spellcasting Initiate made this list, but I found it yep. interesting that Fighting Initiate did not make this list. But, and it's because Magic Initiate is featured as the background feat in so many of the backgrounds. There, Because there's one for each flavor right. of spellcasting now. Correct. You could probably take that Martial Initiate and put it on the guard if you started as a guard, but then you became a wizard, so you have a yep. weapon proficiency. Like you could, yep. If it doesn't have an ASI feat, if it doesn't have an ASI, it's a first-level feat, which makes it interchangeable with any of the feats. I thought the feats, the way that they're constructed, all seem to make sense. There I was love the one. I, in general, liked the changes. I think that there is one feat that was far and away stronger than everything else, and it's the Tavern oh, Brawler feat. No, Tavern Brawler. Absolutely, Tavern Brawler. No, Tavern Brawler got like a serious upgrade. Absolutely. A serious it's, upgrade. It's big. And, now. and honestly, the reason why Tavern Brawler got such an upgrade is because Unarmed Fighting got such an upgrade. 
I don't necessarily agree that it's balanced anymore. I think that, again, like my feeling on the proficiency bonus thing, they upped unarmed fighting to make it better, and they went one step too far, and they need to back up just a little bit. And but that's that why maybe the case by the time it comes out in the final. Yeah, too. totally. I like in general, and we've talked a lot about in other UAs about the way the backgrounds and feats are being integrated and the way that feat trees are being written and everything like that. This is a very much a continuation of that, and I'm definitely down for it. Just want to throw back on Tavern Brawler one more time, even though it's sure. overpowered. I love furniture as weapons. Furniture as a weapon. I just oh, have I to totally say that. that. <laughs> that's absolutely. The fact I that hit they, you with a chair, it's like a great weapon. club. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. The fact that they've taken improvised weapon and made it part of Tavern Brawler. Absolutely. Please and thank you. Yes. All day long. I also thought that it was interesting that they are now explicitly stating whether or not feats are repeatable or not. I think that that might be something that we want to go ahead and leverage in our own descriptions, making sure that we're being explicit with that so that they port properly. Other than that, yeah, I think these feats are, are, I see where they're going with the feats. I think that there's, I see where they're going with them. Yeah. Some of them, like Crafter, is a little lackluster unless you're playing in a campaign where your storyteller really has a solid crafting mechanic going on in his world. But but yeah, they're all pretty solid, if not balanced. And absolutely get a little bit better balancing on the rewrite. Yep. All right. Let's dive into kind of the last major portion of it here, and that is the rules glossary. So we touched on this kind of when we were talking about the feat about Tavern Brawler. The one that I wanted to talk about more than anything else was unarmed fighting unarmed strike because wow did this sucker get some sauce and i don't think it's the right sauce again i think that there are two things with unarmed strike that they gave you that really should be rethought and i'll be putting this my feedback Unarmed strike still does damage totally fine no worries there the thing that i didn't like is that when you do your unarmed strike you can grapple your opponent or you can shove your opponent and knock them prone Without them saving. Without them getting a saving throw. Yeah, it's just automatic. Creature can only be one size larger than you, but if you're a medium-sized humanoid, that means that anything that's large, you can knock prone. Right. It means Basically, just by succeeding in an unarmed strike. They don't get any save against that. It's no longer contested. And so that makes Tavern Brawler an exceptionally strong feat because what Tavern Brawler basically does is the, the one check and balance with unarmed striking is that if you're going to push somebody prone, you don't also get the damage. The big thing with Tavern Brawler is that now one of the things that Tavern Brawler gives you is that you get both the damage and you get to knock them prone. So combine that with what was it? It was the elf, I think, that gave that that got the the initiative bump where you could switch initiatives with anybody else in the tur- in your turn, right? So now you get one of those creatures, I think it was the elf, I could be wrong on that, but basically you get somebody with that ancestry and you give them the tavern brawler feat, you make sure that they go first and you make sure that whoever is going to get ganged up on by the rest of the party, you take your unarmed strike, do some damage, knock them prone, let everybody else in the party attack them while they're prone and has advantage on all those attacks and then next round you go to the next one and that's that is a recipe for we talked about earlier about how a lot of those ancestries are just like recipes for min maxing, especially with the half ancestry rule. Now you're looking at it. Like this is exactly where this can go ahead and stack to to really get some really formative combinations. And it's weird that with grapple working off of a strike as opposed to does that to say, because now an interesting scenario is arranged in my mind. Me and Josh are going at it and I land an unarmed strike, so I decided I'm gonna grapple him. So now he's at disadvantage to attack, but he can still attack back. So say he hits, 
Does that mean he shoves yeah. me five feet away and he's free, or he can choose to grapple me instead, and now I'm the one that's being grappled, and now I don't get to Like, yeah. Because from a wrestling match perspective, that's actually not a bad mechanic. Yeah. Unless it was a contested round, it should a still contested be contested. save every turn. But yeah, contested makes more sense. Yeah. So I'm going to disagree with both of you, and I'm going to do this from the perspective of a character I play that has a lot of these abilities in various ways. And what I found is in actual gameplay, the decision between which of these things you choose to do, because the character I play, HK, can shove you prone three different ways. And I rarely ever do any of them because I can either guarantee damage or do the ability. And using Crawford's own logic, not that he spoke to this specifically, if they have a mechanic they like and creates interesting dramatic situations but nobody's using it because it's mechanically not sound to do so they're going to tweak things so that people do these things more often that's why this changed because nobody's doing these things at the table because they're mechanically unsound okay unless you're at the point where you're like i am at 15th level three attacks i don't shove anybody because if i shove them one i have a chance to do it then two, I then have an opposed check. So that's two chances to fail, not one, two chances to fail. By definition, I lose that more often than I win. That's why there's not a second one. They're saying you either hit them or you save. So it's either an auto hit or it's a chance to hit and no save. It's that whole save or suck thing. You can't take your chance to do something and not do anything else and then have them the ability to save and take no negative repercussion. That's where the action economy works against the player doing it. So they've tweaked it. So it's a one or the other. And this is the test is, will it be too powerful this way? Or should they all be automatic only a save? But you can't have it. So you have to do both. And that's the way most of those things are. Okay. So is that an extension of what you were talking about earlier and taking away the special ability from a monk who has stunning strike. So that's like the big benefit of monk, right? You can spend key, you can expend something and therefore not have to go. Isn't that on some level taking away the special thing from monk and not having them spend anything for it? I don't think so because stunning strike is keyed off of an unarmed strike. So you're doing this first and you spend a key to do your second thing. Right. So why as a monk would I spend... So now am I not going to have to spend key to get Stunning Strike? Yes, you would, because Stunning Strike is different than that. That's kind of apples to oranges. But I get what you're trying to say, Liwaneka, but where it doesn't make sense is in that, it, to a degree, especially if you reverse the situation and you have an NPC fighting a player, if I shove him five feet and he's just prone, he doesn't have any opportunity to stay up because he's dexterous has expertise in acrobatics or is wearing a ring of plus five tomfoolery and i say sorry dude you're just prone because this farmhand who punched you instead of choosing to punch you chose to shove you onto your ass i don't look to my my games to be reality simulators but i've been in more than a few tussles and a lot and a lot of fights go to the ground pretty quickly but if you shove me in a fight, buddy, I'm not going down unless I trip on something. And that's about skill, and that's where the attack comes in. So if I make a proper attack roll, you're going down. But this isn't a... Right? 
what they're saying is if you make your attack roll, so your AC now comes into play. So if I successfully beat your AC, I have landed the strike that causes the action. That's what this rule is. I get that. What they're saying is they don't want it to be I successfully landed the attack and now you get a second chance to not be hit. This isn't a feat. It's not a trained skill. This isn't an ability you train into. This is the standard unarmed strike for every peasant. Everybody. Yes. In the world. Yes. So you're saying that everyone from an urchin to a 95-year-old man could, if they successfully roll high enough, push over the mountain. Yeah. I'm just pushing back five feet. Because we're not saying that you get nothing. It's not save or suck. You shove. You make the hit you get the immediate benefit of pushing him five feet away, which would be a great maneuver if you're trying to escape without taking an opportunity attack. There's a use for that move. But if you're then going to take the target and make him prone without any ability to try to stay on his feet, if you hit, you get the push, you get the shove, but they only fall over if they fail a dexterity saving throw and trip over their own feet. Yeah. As a matter of fact, you're wrong because it's shove or prone. Not both. Or when you do okay. that, you choose Ooh. which of the two options. Right. You I, don't I missed, get both. I missed the or. Yep. Okay. I missed the or. But I would contend yep. still yeah. that if you're pushing me and trying. Yeah. Prone Sorry, man. A check. If you're going to try yeah. to knock me down, I should have an opportunity yep. to maintain my feet, to use right. my strength to resist. Look, that's Look what you're- at your 15th level Warforge, right? He walks up behind him. So he shouldn't have shove is the strike. answer makes an unarmed strike, knocks him over. HK now needs to take his entire movement and actions to stand up. So those three attacks that he gets to make every turn when he can go ahead and knock somebody prone, those three attacks that he gets every round when he gets to try to knock somebody prone, he does not get. So you've stood up. Fantastic. I'm going to hit you again. Unarmed strike. Knock you prone. You Spend your next round standing up. But that's, like that's not how that works. If you have oh, it's movement, I suppose it's the movement to go ahead and stand up. Yeah, okay. And it's right. only half your movement to stand up. So I still got 15 feet once I've stood up. To use your example, Luanika, make him make the save. On a fail, they go prone. On a success, they get knocked back five feet. Like, I think even that would be make more sense. And it would definitely make more narrative sense. If I shove you, you get a chance to go ahead and figure out whether you're going to fall down or not. And if you don't get fall down, I still shoved you and you still went back five feet. What else did we find in these in these rules here that we liked or didn't like or thought thought was interesting? Spell list combination. I have a love-hate for the spell list. I love everything they have. I love the breakdowns that they have. Dividing the spell list into three groups, primal, divine, and arcane is great. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. Full stop. My problem is they left out psionics. There should yep. have been a fourth breakdown. They should have had a psionic list. Granted, it would not be as large right now, but they've got two and a half years to write things, add to that list. Yeah. Or have spells that basically could mirror or be psionically capable. Because yeah. there's a lot of these things that you could do with psionics, right? Yep. That I think would make sense. You could psionically heal, use healing word because yeah. there, there's all kinds of theory about 
the power of the mind being able yeah. to cause healing and things like that. So there's so many different things that you could do. Any of the communication spells would fall under there. There's just so many different things. I, who love psionics and have loved psionics through three editions of this game, second, third, and fifth, didn't play it, didn't see it in fourth, so I have no idea how it worked there, have always felt I hate the fact that I know once they start putting in psionics, we're on the march to the end of an edition because that's the way it's always been. And I'm like, since you're going to say this is one D and D, there are no more editions. Give us a psionic list so that it's there. So I could build a spellcaster That's all psionics, by the way, when they come up with classes, give us a psionic school. That's what I, I would think. be hoping for. I think, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but I'm looking at these lists and I'm hearing what you're saying. And I think you're right. Psionics are not mentioned. I think maybe, and maybe this is hope against hope, that it's because there is not one type of psionic. There are like the Dune style psionics that study, like the Ben and Jesuit, they study the mental powers and they study their expansion so much that they have unlocked the ability to go ahead and think that those are your arcane psionicists. There are the psionics who have received the divine gift who have the like the oracles of delphi right oracular psionics those are divine psionics and then you've got the people that came the kind of your sorceress psionics right the ones that kind of like came into psionic ability the ability to go ahead and push things over with their mind and everything like that those are primal psionics the answer might not be that we need a psionic spell list but that we need a diverse class of psionic characters who have different flavors. Just an idea. So one of the things that it really makes me wonder is what it's going to do for some of our off-healers. Yeah. The Druid still has Healing Word in their spell list on Primal. But what's the Bard going to be? The Bard is going to be Arcane. If the Bard's Bard's Arcane, Arcane. I know. If the Bard's Arcane, they just lost the ability to heal completely. Yeah. Yep. They sure did. Yeah. I actually, so I was listening to another podcast, and I wish that I could remember which one it was. But they actually had a fantastic suggestion specifically for Bard, and it is a suggestion that comes from the second edition of the game that we won't mention because it offshot from D&D third edition, that Bards get to pick which spell list they, they operate from, and that's the special thing with Bards. They can pick, are they which one do they fall into? So maybe we see something like that for Psionics, again, where they can pick. But I thought that that was a a really neat idea that is kind um, of neat. coming from another system. And yeah. I think that would work. My only thing that I would say is, and why I think there needs to be a psionic list is if a psionic got to pick one of these lists, there's a bunch of things that have no basis in psionicism. If such a word exists. Sure. And I think that's where my, that's where my concern comes in. It's, I wouldn't want a psionic to have chromatic or orb. I don't see that as a psionic power. And so I think, in this case, coming up with a list of psionic powers and saying, here's your list, makes most sense for any psionic character, whether they be all the different things, because that's effectively what this does. It's going to say all your rangers do this, all your other things do that, but since psionics are not a class, they are subclasses within each of the classes, to simply say your subclass now draws from this list or that list would make sense, and if they had a psionic list, something like the beast mind, for example, you now draw from the psionic list of your powers. 
Well, yeah, subclasses will give you the ability to write alternate spell lists where you have spells that are cross list, but they count for you because just like yeah. we have now, so that'll right. exist. But if they have the divine normally to simply say you now have the psionic spell list as opposed to the standard divine spell list, so there may be some things that they don't have out of that list. And then you have a couple granted spells which may come from that list. But their new spell list is just all of the psionic powers. And then they've got a few granted powers, so maybe they still get Sacred Flame. I think that ultimately leaves us where we don't know really how these spell lists are going to be used yet. Because all that they did really was trot them out and say, hey, by the way, only three special spell lists. Yep. Have at it. Let's tease you with this real quick. Yeah, once we see the classes and how the classes are going to use the spell lists or modify the spell lists or whatever, I think that's going to be very interesting. Especially when we start looking at how does, like, sure, uh, the Warlock are arcane spellcasters, but with such limited spell slots, what is that actually going to mean when we see the list and everything like that? I think it's going to be interesting to go ahead and kind of see how this all plays out. We don't know enough about it just yet. One last thing that I wanted to touch on. We mentioned briefly earlier the 1 versus 20 mechanic. Yeah. And that they're embracing that a little bit, that everybody's always done it. So they straight up written that auto fail, auto success for 1 and 20 will account across all rolls, not just attack rolls. Yep. Attack rolls, saving throws, and ability checks, basically. Any D20 check. Any D20 check. But for crits in particular... I found it interesting that they specified that it only doubles the weapon damage. So if you have a weapon that does D8 as a mace, but then it D8 also, plus because six it's a whatever, fire, yeah. does a D6 fire, the way that they wrote it, I don't think the fire would double. Nope. The fire got dropped, and they just nerfed the rogue, because yeah. now your sneak attack damage does not double. No crits for mobs. Players are the only people that crit hit. Yeah. And spells don't crit. Only spells don't, uh, yeah. melee attacks spells. and unarmed yeah. attacks. Yeah. That's, not a, just, that's a balance between spellcasters and whatever. Because uh, so that if a fireball going to disappoint crits, a lot of people if that fall if that makes it all the way yeah. through. So I'm okay but with it. Is that ludicrous one. if a fireball crits, but it can't because it's not an attack roll. Yeah, I'm okay with that rule. As far as the uh, mobs and monsters, not not critting let me introduce you to the very first rule from one D I will never f- use so i actually you mean like you'll include it. that in your feedback in the survey that they from one, oh, yeah. with one exception i'm going to run it i think as dropping it for your standard minion but a yeah, boss or an npc or any higher level bad guy yep. keep it anything with a cr1 so or above yeah i might put it in Remove it, but put it back in selectively, depending yep. on the foe. Uh, yeah, as an ability of a particular creature, yeah, this creature does get criticals or something like that. That's mm-hmm. hot. I like Actually, that. I think that might be the answer. I think the answer is now we just build monsters that specifically grant yep. the ability to yeah, do criticals. Yep. Because now you don't have to be quite as afraid at level one when you know the half-orc that you're fighting yeah. crits with that great axe that you're going to be yep. sent all the way to your maker on your first mission. <laughs> all right, so... Let's try to go ahead and put a bow on this. And I think that it is important to talk about what we think the one D&D movement as a whole is going to mean to the hobby. Take it away from the table a little bit. We talked a lot about kind of what these playtest rules may mean for the table, what we think they're going to mean for the table, what we like, what we don't like, all that sort of stuff. But I think that there's a lot 
wrapped up in one D&D that is going to have some implications outside, uh, away from the table. So, Luenica, you were mentioning some when we were talking ahead of time. Why don't you go ahead and get started here? Yeah, so my big focus since I became a content creator and since we started this was finding ways to support various elements of the community and in specific, the elements of the community that brought me to the or kept me in this game. I've talked at length on during several interviews on other shows and on our show about how I started at in Boy Scouts. Glenn and I spoke at great length in several of those same interviews about how our local game store was the place we went. It was home base for us for gaming. Just as many games as we played in our homes, we played there. We were there all night. Some of us became employees of the place. We built strong friendships and relationships with the owners with other employees and other people. We've met people through those the local game store. I am confident that is not a unique story. I know for a fact that is a universal story, not just here in Connecticut, not just New England, not just the U.S. Worldwide, local game stores are where friendships are made and where people come to this hobby and new people find this hobby. There's a lot in this that really takes away and harms local shops. And that scares me for my local shop. And while there still may be opportunities to continue to support your local shop, there are, it is not going to be as easy because I feel as a community, Watsi has disincentivized some of the purchases that you could be making at your local shop. Now, Watsi, in the same hand as they're taking away things, they are giving plenty. If you watch the full announcement, which was a t- almost a two-hour-long procedure with separate interviews and separate videos and YouTubes and things like that that were outside of that, a lot of it was focused on Magic the Gathering. And in that respect, Hasbro as, an, as a company and what Wizards of the Coast is g- doing a lot to add to your local shops. But from D&D specifically, the digital bundles that we've been asking for, they have. That's a wonderful thing. The problem is, it is at a price point that makes it harder for some folks, depending on your economics situation, to continue to support. They're still going to have special covers. But if you want a digital book and a special cover, that's two separate purchases. And many of them are going to be in the 50 to 60 and possibly higher dollar range. Two $60 purchases to get the book to support your store and the digital copy, which, by the way, you might as well get a second book. You're buying two physical books and a digital copy. That's a stretch for people depending on their economic situation. And I find that scary for our local shops. I hope, because Crawford did say one thing to give me hope, that not even this particular price structure that's coming with the Dragonlance project is a guarantee for the way everything is going to be moving forward. They are testing how this is going to be. So feedback is key. My concern is feedback in this case is going to be about what Hasbro sees for dollars. If people go out and buy both, they're probably going to keep doing it. If people stop doing one or the other, that may not be the case. I would hope that the idea is you could buy the digital bundle back at that lower cost so you can go to your store and buy the higher cost one. So we can still buy digital bundles for 30 and I can still buy my physical book 
for 60. I don't like that price point, but that to me is something I would better afford than two books at 60 so I can continue to support my store and have the digital copy that I use very frequently. So why is that an issue then? You could buy two books for 60. Because that's $120 versus 90. Exactly. Versus 90. So the solution's kind of already built in. But I don't think you can. I think the only way to buy the digital is if you buy the $60 book based on the way they did that. You can no longer buy a $30 digital. Oh, I did not catch that out of what I read. It is $60 for a digital copy, $60 for a physical book and a digital copy. Watsy sends you the physical book or whatever the cost is to buy the physical book from your local store. There is no lower cost for a digital copy. That price structure is creating a problem for our local stores. Fair enough. And I don't think you're wrong. I've come more around to to your way of thinking on that, that it's, I don't think D&D is going to be doing any favors for the local stores anytime soon. And I don't think that's going to be the case or their focus. I think you're right on that. But I do want to just give an alternate perspective in terms of some of the, I don't know, intent behind it, maybe, because it's not necessarily because they're trying to down the local stores or because they're trying to gouge, though we'll see what the final price point comes out like. And we can put feedback in stating that we want to still be able to buy a digitals only book if that's what we want. Because as a non-physical player, book person, I don't want to spend 60 bucks to get the same. No. So we can definitely get some feedback on there. I think there's a way that we're going to, as a community, through these changes and the next couple of years, we're going to have to find different ways to support our store our local stores. So for instance, whenever I buy a book, I also buy a set of dice whenever I, or I buy a couple figs. I never buy just the book. Even that's what I do because I recognize it's about helping them get a little bit more. So I buy the special cover. I get that. I guess in order to support my store, I'm going to find a different way to help them out. I don't know. I also love the collectability of the extra covers. I just don't know if I can consistently with five releases a year, drop that kind of money for the same book. I hear what you're saying and hundred percent feel you because that money thing is going to be important. And the money is what Hasbro and what Watsy's looking at. You're not wrong, but it's not just the money they're looking at. <laughs> they're looking at the future of the hobby. They're looking at progress and whether we like it or not, you can't stop progress. So the story that you told about the local game store, I love it. I lived it. I feel you. And sadly, in 30 years, I don't think how most people are going to be introduced to the, it's how most people are going to be introduced to the hobby anymore. I think in now to the next 10 years, most people who are new to the hobby are going to be coming in the digital space and they're going to be playing yeah. on Roll20 or they're going to play be playing on one D&D's new VTT that they're putting out yep. or they're going to be playing on Fantasy Grounds. And I would love for D&D to still be that staple game in the game store but it's not going to be. It'll still be played. No. Don't get me wrong. It'll still be on the shelf and it'll still be played, but it won't be the staple game anymore. It is moving yeah. into the digital space 100%. And there's nothing we can do to stop that. No. As much as we want them to continue to support the local stores, we're going to have to just be happy and continue to encourage them to do things like expand with magic or give us a better price point and another way to do it. Find alternate solutions. From my understanding, from conversations that I've had with my local game store, I think that we may be underestimating the absolute draw of Magic the Gathering in this equation. So stores getting more and better 
options for Magic the Gathering at the expense of D&D books that take up valuable shelf space, that may not actually be a bad deal for the local game stores. And beyond that also, like I hear what you're saying about the digital copies. I don't know that physical brick and mortar stores want to even get anywhere near dealing with digital copies at all. And so that might be part of why that was a non-starter. Oh, I actually had a way to to do that. And I heard what Glenn was saying about you in a much earlier episode, probably a year ago when it came up, but about how difficult it is and people trading books and where the yeah. codes can be used. And what I would say to that is, let's be real. Watsi has had a digital card that you go into a store, you get signed up for that I have always found challenging to hack. Like when I first got D&D Beyond, I had a set and I got locked out of that first D&D Beyond account. And I've never been able to get that first D&D Beyond account. I had to get a second one. Fortunately, I had not bought anything other than the original thing. So when they came time to re-up it, I let it drop. I had no purchases on it because I got locked out of the freaking thing and I couldn't get back into it. But this is going to be tied into your Wizards of the Coast ID or potentially could be if it's not already. And that's they've been doing with magic for years. So if they, if you are purchasing something on a wizard's ID, no different than if you go to your game store and play a magic game in person and your code gets logged into their system that goes directly to wizard that authorizes you for a thing. You're not doing that any differently because again, their digital content isn't a PDF. It's access to a page. So it's no different than right now that I can share my password to, to with somebody else. So it's not getting traded any more or less than it hmm. currently is. It's all about how they deliver that access to that product. There, there's definitely a way that they could find to work it out, whether it's convoluted or simple, but has an infrastructure that has to be built. If you're going to run those numbers and have the and have every store that sold the books have the software and capability to report that number back, if they set all of that up, it could. But I think one thing that we're not seeing, and it's because we talk from our hearts and we speak from where we love the hobby. We don't think of it as numbers and we don't think of it as math. But what are the numbers like for book sales in terms of regular covers versus special in-store covers? Because most of the people that I've talked to about them didn't even know they existed till we started talking about them. Some yeah. of our game stores that, we've, that, I've, that we go to don't even order those because they don't know about it. So if Watsi's got a product that's not selling, they're not going to reinforce it also. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong. All right, gentlemen. I think, I think that we should put this one to bed. There's going to be much more actual, going to be much more playtest content. I almost said actual play mm-hmm. content. Playtest content coming out on this soon. The Wizards has said that we're going to be getting one of these roughly every month between now and when that new player's handbook launches at the beginning of 2024. I suspect that this won't be the last time you hear about 1D&D playtest content here mm-hmm. on Tabletop Journey. We will see what form that takes, but we have some ideas. Next week, we are going to start our deep dive into the Spelljammer books that Mr. Lou and Nika Miller over there showcased at the beginning of the show. We're going to do two episodes on Spelljammer. We're going to do one on the uh, the player mechanic rule side of things, and then one episode on the uh, uh, on the adventure. I think that's going to be a, that's going to be a good time because yeah, I'll save that for the episode next week. But that's uh, yeah, yeah, we. I think it's fair to say that we have tots <laughs> on on Spelljammer. <laughs>
but yeah, that's going to be a good time. I hope that you checked out the the next kind of field trip episode. We began airing our actual play of Fay, the game by Jay Moore's. A ton of fun. First episode came out this past Tuesday, so if you haven't checked that out yet, make mm. sure you check it out. Uh, we'll be playing it. that for another couple of weeks here. Yeah, when with Glenn playing Puddin and Lee Winnick over there playing, was it Jax? Was that, what was your name? Jax, Nix, Jix, something like that? I can't remember the name off the yeah. top of my head. Playing a mug I remember that. Yeah, Jack, I think Jax. Yeah, but yeah. Anywho. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I know that this was a long episode tonight, but boy, there's just a lot, a lot of material to go into in this in this UA here. Hope you enjoyed. Hope you got some information. And most importantly, the survey opened yesterday. Get out there, fill out the survey, read through the UA, share your thoughts with Wizards of the Coast, because that's the only way that we're going to get the product that we want in 2024 is if we do that. We will talk to you next week when we talk uh, Spelljammer. So thank you very much, everybody. Hope you enjoyed, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Have a good night. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, at TT Journeys, by joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. And remember, if you want early access to all of our episodes, a chance to drop dice with your favorite hosts, and maybe even appear in one of our actual plays, you can join our Patreon to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash ttjourneys. You're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible. We would appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays, and every Tuesday features our actual play episodes. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler along our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.